Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. The Lord be with you. I'm going off script here for just a moment as I have a tendency to do my apologies to the guys running the scroll. But this song, In Christ There Is No East or West, shouldn't that be the national anthem of our country at this time? Just a thought. We should be singing this loud and clear everywhere. There is no east or west, no north or south. From sin, division, hate, and shame, from spite, from enmity. With God, there is no tribe, no race. In him, we all are one. Wishful thinking, prayerful thinking. I wanted you to see this today. This is, I thought this was bright light shining. This is a, the kids in the daycare who we just brought over back into the sanctuary. They've been cornered over in the, in the portable. But we thought, I came here the other day and saw that bright shining light in what is otherwise pretty much an empty church during the week. And I, I was so taken by that. I thought, my goodness, uh, there's what joy that brings when you just see it. The color of it, the flowers, the the the, the things that, that you see in there that just sparkle with love for our Lord. This is the ninth Sunday of our 13th Sunday journey through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And it brings us to a very interesting chapter right near the middle of the book, chapter 11. In American Christianity, chapter 11 of the book of Romans is routinely shredded. It's torn apart, so to speak. You can find bits and pieces of it scattered on the internet or on websites that speak of the end times and the restoration of Israel. These verses are joined together with prophecies from Daniel, visions from Ezekiel, images from Revelations, doomsday predictions and rumors and rumors of war in the nation of Israel, in the Holy Land. With great fervor and very strong language, various Christian organizations fight for the nation of Israel, claiming that once Israel is restored, then, then the Lord will return. And in the, scattered in the background of all of this angst and all the Bible verses and all the visions, you will find verses from Romans 11. How fitting it is, then, that in our lectionary for today, we do not read the entire chapter of Romans, do we? We read 1 and 2a, 13 to 15, and 28 to 32. We get bits and pieces, various verses, but that's the way Romans 11 is often and usually read. A verse here, a verse there. All of that amid arguments about politics and power and the Christian rule and, and, and the ruling of the nations of the world, all in the name of Christ and for the sake of his return. Do you think that's what Paul thought about? Do you think he desired that? Do you think he wanted that when he wrote this? Do you think he was okay with how confused the church is going to be by that? Do you think he wanted to confuse the church? 
Today we're going to consider what Paul's vision was of God's greater work for all people, Jew and Gentile, in Christ. With the goal that his vision, this vision that he has here in this text, will inspire you, inspire me, as it did Paul. Inspire all of us to live as one people in Christ Jesus. United in God's mission. Have you ever noticed how in some art museums they put guards right next to the paintings to protect the paintings? They're not, they don't, I don't think they're weaponized, but they put them right there next to the paintings. And if you don't have a guard there, then they bring out this beautiful-looking red velvet rope and these gold stands, and they stand it at just a certain point, a certain distance from the picture. I mean, it's like social distancing in the art museum, right? And they put it so that you can get so close, but you can't get any closer. In fact, curators have told patrons, that's as far as you go, don't go any further. And it's not surprising or rare if you start to hand, put a finger out to show some detail that you get your finger slapped. <laughs> or you said, step back, step back. That, my friends, is the art. Art has a way of drawing us in. We want to get closer when we see art. It gets up close and personal. We find ourselves moving closer to the painting because we want to examine the smallest details that we can see there. So let's do that. Let's have that exercise today. Look at your... I have a bigger one. <laughs> this is what you see in here. This is a beautiful, beautiful manuscript, if you will, by Willem Rielant. He was a manuscript illuminator in the 14th century. It's been a while back. At first glance, though, his work is rather confusing. It is a picture of King David there in an open-air chapel. And you should be looking at King David. But what are you really drawn to? You're drawn to the vines, to the flowers, right? You're drawn into these things. They're gorgeous. Art has a way of pulling us in. The problem is when we view art... We can get so close to the painting that we can't see and we lose sight of what it's really all about. You know the old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. Ever have you been there? You're right in the middle of a forest, but you forgot you're in the middle of a forest because you're so concentrated on those tall, skinny trees. You've gotten so close. Sometimes being immersed in the details prevents you from seeing the larger picture. This work, if you look at it closely, right here, is pretty confusing, isn't it? David is surrounded by vines and flowers. It's the vines and flowers that catch our attention. Some of the flowers are deep blue. Others seem to be leaved in gold. And the leaves tend to sparkle off the canvas. And if you look closer, you see two birds. You see them? And right above them, what looks to be strawberries. Isn't that neat? For a moment, you get lost in confusion. You're tracing a maze of vines and flowers. You catch a bird here. You catch a berry there. It's almost like those mazes that you see at Riddles where it says, here you enter through this place. How do you come out of that thing? We're so caught up in the picture of the vines and the flowers. 
I want you to think about that because that's what happens when you read Romans 11 very often. It's confusing. We're drawn into it, though, by the strangeness of Paul's words in chapter 11. In these words, he discusses the status of Israel and God's plan for salvation. At one point, he speaks of the hardening of Israel, claiming God has rejected his people, hardened their hearts. But at another point in the same chapter, he speaks of the salvation of Israel, their election, if you will, and he mentions the word election, being beloved for the sake of their forefathers. If you read this up close and out of context, it may become very confusing. Not surprising. Some theologians argue that this text that Paul lays here, the foundation for the anti-Jewish sentiment that we have in the Christian church, even up to today, since God has rejected Israel and chosen the Gentile nations, the church now lives the same way. That's the argument. You remember the Jews were expelled from Rome and the Gentile church took over and grew. And when the Jews came back, the the Gentiles would have very little reason to welcome them back as brothers and sisters in the faith. They're Jews. We're Gentiles. But others use these verses to argue for a future day when God will restore the Jewish people and fight for restoration as a prelude to Christ's return. This concern is expressed mostly in political action. It becomes a way in which the church can hasten the return of Christ. At least that's the plan. But has God rejected Israel or not? That's the question. Will God save Israel or not? These are the questions that arise from the reading of this text. But even more problematic for me is the picture that these verses can give me of my God. My God looks indifferent here. My God acts unfaithful. One time he calls this people, and then he rejects them and picks up another people. Can God even be faithful? Can God be trusted? How's that possible? How can he do that? How can he claim one person, one nation, and drop them and play somebody else? Can we even, in our time and right now, and everything we're going through, trust God? Paul, thank God, is aware of this problem. He sees how confusing this can be, so he's very clear when he makes the points that he makes in this text. First, he wants all people to know that God remains faithful to his promises. Faithful. God hasn't rejected Israel. Paul himself is an Israelite. If God was to reject the Israelites, Paul stands condemned too. God brought Paul to faith in Christ Jesus, and he uses him to reach out to the Gentiles. And in doing this, God remains faithful to his plan From one nation, that plan says, from Israel, God has promised all nations to be saved. He promises a Savior for every nation, Jew and Gentile alike. And Paul believes in his Messiah, 
Jesus. So he reaches out to the nations, especially the Gentile nations, with this great news. You too, you too are included. You too are saved. Does this mission to the Gentile nations mean that the church should forget about Israel? By no means. This is Paul's second point. The church is part of God's mission to his chosen people, and Paul uses himself as an example of that. His ministry to the Gentiles is a ministry that seeks to lead Israel back to God's grace. Paul here asks us to take a step back from the artwork to see the bigger picture. Paul finds himself and his ministry a part of that larger picture of the working of God in the world, not Paul, of God's work. Look up close at Vreeland's artwork. I mean, I'm captivated by the vines and the flowers. It's a very swirling maze of figures, though, that are hard to follow. But when I step back, step back and hold that picture away from you at a distance, and what do you see? It becomes very clear. You see the blend of these flowers and all these flowers and fruits and berries blend in to form a picture frame, don't they? A frame of a picture. You can see that from a distance. You can't see it up front. It's a picture of King David. <clears throat> What's so big about that? It's, it's a picture of King David in prayer. In prayer. Below him are words of Psalm 6. You can't tell that by looking at it. <clears throat> that is Psalm 6. <clears throat> and what is Psalm 6? It's a prayer for mercy. Above Psalm 6, you see what looks prayer looks like in real life. Someone on their knees, eyes up, hands folded, praying to God. That's what prayer looks like in real life. You also see David on his knees, and behind him is what? Behind him is a throne. The throne is empty. And on the floor before him, leaning up against what, a little altar there, is a harp. But psalmist doesn't play the harp. Nothing's being played on that harp. What we have is just the King David coming before God in prayer. David, a king, not on his throne. David, a psalmist, not singing the harp. He's not ruling. He's not singing. He is deep in prayer to his God. He knows his sin, and he trusts in God's mercy as he tries to serve God's people in the world. Carried a lot on his shoulders, and he sought to find God's help and mercy in everything he did. If you follow David's eyes, you'll see God above him. The right hand raised in blessing, the left hand holding up the world. You wouldn't have seen that, though, if I had pointed it out, would you? In a sense, what we see here is a picture of the mystery of salvation. God, who establishes kings and opens the mouths of prophets, is the only one who truly rules the world. He's called David to the throne of his people, and he's promised David a descendant who will rule without end. This is what the people of God held on to. They held on to that promise. 
a descendant of David who would rule to the end of the earth. And now, think about this, now in Christ, Paul sees that promise taking on flesh and blood in Jesus. He sees that promise that he heard about in the old scriptures, and they're no longer this confusing mumble-jumble of words that make no sense or that confuse him. No, they have become real in the flesh and blood of Jesus. It's real for Paul. He wants to share that good news. God promised he would bring salvation through Israel and that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth and here's the beginning of it. Though all nations were disobedient to God, God chose one nation, Israel, to be his people, to bring the message of salvation to earth. And while some of his people rejected the Messiah, did God reject him, them, Did God reject it? Did God change his plans? Did he throw that out with the baby in the bathwater and start over? Did he construct something new? No. No. He continued to be merciful. He called all nations to believe in Jesus and to receive forgiveness of sins. And now he's facing Israel's disobedience. Will God forget his mercy? No. Not a chance. Paul lives in a hope of an even greater day when his work among the Gentiles might lead lead Israel, his brothers, in the flesh into the church where his brothers and sisters in faith may become one in Christ. Just as the Jews, just as the Gentiles were once disobedient and God showed them mercy, Paul sees the day when the Jews who are now disobedient will be led to repentance and will receive God's mercy. God has consigned all to disobedience, Paul writes, Gentile and Jew. Why? So that he might have mercy upon all, not just one or the other. He doesn't take sides. Paul lives by hope, by a vision of God's salvation, gathering Jew and Gentile in one body, one church, one new Israel, holding one faith in one God. Jesus, the one who forgives all people of their sins. As Paul steps back from the details, he's able to see that big picture. And he sees as a vision of mercy on the, vis- on the purpose of God. As God comes into this world, he finds disobedience, not just in Jews. He finds disobedience throughout the world, every human being. But he remains faithful to his promises. He works mercy for all people. And though all are disobedient, God remains merciful to all people who believe in Jesus Christ. What a massively beautiful thought that is. But it's not easy to live by this vision. It requires strength and courage. In St. Louis, the Roman Catholic Archbishop has for years participated in a Passover Seder hosted by the Association of Hebrew Catholics, Jews who believe in Jesus as their Messiah and participate in the Roman Catholic Church. Interesting. 
Each year, Hebrew and American Catholics gather at the table, and they celebrate the Passover with an eye toward how the promises of that meal were made flesh in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful gathering. Except at the same time, every year, this, may, this meal, this tableship and fellowship is greeted with conflict and consternation. Jewish leaders and some other Christian churches are angered by this event. For them, the Catholic Church is overstepping its bounds. It's seeking to bring conversion among the Jews. <gasps> Sad that is. That's just one example, though, of how God's people in America are called to live by a very different story. Our American culture prides itself on freedom of religion. People can believe whatever they want to believe. Bumper stickers even encourage attendances in churches or synagogues or the mosque of your choice. It doesn't matter. Some bumper stickers even use symbols to try to spell out the word coexist. But the larger vision of bumper stickers like that is that there are many paths to God. There are many people, and we must respect and appreciate the various ways of God. If all religions could just get along with, we would have peace in the land. To practice your own faith is one thing. The American culture will support you with that. But to speak about your faith as if it might matter to someone else, <laughs> that's a different matter altogether. You can worship God. You can speak to God however you want. You can believe God to be whatever you want him or her to be. But to speak to others about God, to act as if your God might have a word that's important to someone else, nah, that's argumentative. That's disrespectful of others. That stirs up conflict. That gets called right now hate speech. So while our culture will protect your right to worship God as you please, it also protects the rights of others and cautions you to be careful about bringing your God to them. <laughs> In such a culture, it would be easy to let everyone practice his or her faith, wouldn't it? Your faith is a personal matter, something between you and your BFF, Jesus. Paul's not buying that for one instant. He wouldn't buy it if he was here today. Paul knows differently. Because to be joined to Christ is to be joined to his mission. And God chooses to be at work through his people, all people. Because God has an even greater story for this world. It's not a story of peace by tolerance of other religions. It's a story of peace found in the death and resurrection of his son. That's the story. Not tolerance for other religions. Because all have been disobedient, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. But God has mercy on all of them. And the very next verse are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when you come near to Jesus, when you are brought by faith to the power of God in his word, then you are sent to those nearest to you who need Jesus who need to hear. Jew and Gentiles alike, neighbors and family, as God continues to work out his story by bringing salvation to everyone. 
We have a role in that story. In that picture I just showed you earlier, I mentioned the manuscript, Illumination of Vreeland, but what I failed to tell you is about the nature of his work. This, book, this work is just part of what's called the Book of Hours. It's a personal prayer book designed for individual Christians to guide them in prayer. When you turn in that book to Psalm 6, you see the King David kneeling before God in penitential prayer. Can you imagine if every Christian just opened that up and saw that? It is an invitation, my friends, for you to start praying and a way to do it, an example. It's personal. It's intimate. It's a way of reflecting on God's promise. In a way, in one sense, this book that we talked about, the book of ours, mirrors the work of God, doesn't it? It's intimate. His work is intimate. To save the world through intimacy, made known in the Old Testament scriptures through his words of promise. Intimacy made known in the New Testament when the word became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us and for our salvation. And intimacy made known even today through God's people as we share the words that bring faith to others. God's words bring people to life. People like the Apostle Paul. People like me. People like you. And God's word reaches out to others through the lives of all his people. So what conversation is God calling you to have today? With others. What strange and perhaps difficult speech is God calling you to say to other people today? It may be something very bold. It may be something very quiet. It may be something large like a lifelong conversation with your father, or it may be something very small like a brief conversation with a stranger on the bus, or like I have found in my days of census work when I knock on a door and I see a family of nine people five of them adopted children in all different walks of life and the happiness in that family and the need of that family and my mind immediately runs to my pantry and I come back and get all kinds of food for them because to feed nine mouths a day and to have that kind of joy that's God sent that's how God gives us the work we do. Comes very much by surprise. It may be visual, like the baptism of Ava Beth Easterling that reminds every single one of us of our own adoption and of God's promise for all of us. A promise now in her, a promise that may have been long ago in us but still reigns in us through the Holy Spirit who works faith in us and who works in us to share with others. In whatever way, it is God's at work through his people in the world. Paul reveals to us that we are a people who live by a proclamation. That proclamation is the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus. God is here today for you, forgiving your sins, 
He's here today for others, seeking to bring them to faith as well. One thing we know about God, he will not stop. He will not be silent. He will not be put down. He will continue to work through his people in very intimate ways. I know that firsthand. He will work through you through intimate moments with individual people. He loves to work that way. Because in so doing, he continues to fulfill his mission of bringing all nations into one body, the church, the new Israel in Christ. Amen.